You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. Tonight, we're talking about the 1987 vampire classic, The Lost Boys. Our dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. The middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. Get you, Barbara. We're on a mission from God. I'll buy that for a dollar. Welcome to the party, pal. What's the smile on that face? All right, sweethearts, you heard the man. Pull him out. Come on, let's have him. I will show you where I have made my home while preparing to bring justice. Then I will break you. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. With me tonight. What's happening, man? What's happening, people? Hey, Paul, you sound different there, buddy. I know, man. We got a little bit different uh, recording going on tonight, man. See if we can get uh, you listeners a better sounding show. So tonight we're going to be talking about The Lost Boys. Before we go really into the film, I wanted to touch real briefly. This movie is directed by Joel Schumacher. I am a huge uh-huh. Joel Schumacher fan. Uh, I'm a real big fan of Flatliners, Falling Down. He's gotten a lot of backlash for Batman and Robin. Batman Forever is such a way worse movie. I don't understand why fans really decide that they want to tear not only you know, the film apart, but they want to tear, you know, Joel Schumacher himself apart. Batman and Robin is a bad film. It's not a good movie. But Oh, no, at, it's not. But at the same time, I think that version of Batman it has its fans. I'm not one of those yeah. fans. It's made for a certain kind of Batman fan. Like I, can under, like, I understand that there's people out there that like the Adam West TV show of Batman. They like that. There's a version of Batman that they like with the sucker punch action bubbles of bam, pow and zap. Pow. I mean, it it is a a part of the Batman mythos. You know, it's probably, it's part of Batman. I mean, it's, it's that that simple. Yeah. They replaced those comic action bubbles in the 66 show and Batman and Robin. They just replaced that with bad Arnold Schwarzenegger puns. And there was, there was a couple, uh, Poison Ivy puns in that movie that were pretty, pretty horrible too. Yeah, but it was made for more of a kid audience. But the one yeah. thing that I really respect about Joel Schumacher is that I think he's just taken all of the blame. He has come out and said, like, you know, I approved everything that was in this movie. You know, if if Dude, you, you hate the film, this is this is it's my fault. You know. I mean, can you honestly see fucking George Lucas coming out and saying, "Oh well." Oh, um, I just, uh, I just want to publicly apologize for making episode one. Joel Schumacher actually has enough. That dude's got balls, dude. I mean, really, he does. I mean, yeah, really, I don't think, I don't think he has to apologize to a bunch of Batman fanboys. Look, look, I'm a Batman fanboy. No director has to apologize for the film that they make. You know, there's all these different interpretations of the of the character of Batman. Just because I don't like that one doesn't mean that somebody else, you know what I mean? Yeah, like I said, man, to each his own. I mean, everybody's got their own 
their own tastes and everything, but it's just it, it's just not fair. It's not fair that, that people just kind of shit on the dude so bad. I mean, well, okay, and here's the other part of it. It got really mean-spirited on the internet. A little bit of little all right, Joel Schumacher is in he's very open about being a homosexual and yeah. just because he put nipples on the bat suit, a bunch of Batman fanboys totally lost their mind and said some really horrific shit on the internet. Attacking this guy dude, personally, it's, and it's like, dude, come on, it's fucking nipples on the bat suit. Who gives a fuck, bro? Seriously. It's like my my big thing on that is like, really, are you that much of a nitpicking fuckhead to make that big of a deal about it? I mean, come on, dude. Just you know, it's just because he's a homosexual, and you're gonna call him out, and it's and it's just, oh my god, dude, it's it's a bunch of homophobes and. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, dude, I'm big, I'm a Batman. I'm I'm a fan of Batman. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I, I am a bit of a Batman fanboy. So what if the guy's gay? So what if he put nipples on Batman? If the movie's a piece of shit, say the movie's a fucking piece of shit. If that's your opinion, and you really think he did a really bad job, you know that. I mean, that's your opinion. Nobody can change that. But to attack yeah. somebody on a personal level and say such terrible things, it's like. Uh, that's not classy, guys. That's, uh... Yeah. Come on, just be classy. I, I think Joel Schumacher's kind of gotten a bad... He gets a bad rap a lot. Um, And I think, you know, after Batman and Robin, he did kind of, like, his films, he took darker projects. Like, you know, he took, like, things yeah. like 8mm. 8mm was a fucked up film, but it was a good film. That was a good movie. You know, that's pretty dark subject matter. Yeah, I'm going to do a campy 60s version of Batman and Robin and go into doing a movie with Nicolas Cage about a snuff film. I, you know, I think you completely have to forgive him just because he he made Phone Booth, man. And if you haven't seen Phone Booth, that's such a good thriller. I like Phone Booth, dude. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Oh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. And, um, of course, if you haven't seen Flatliners, Please go see that. It is a really good supernatural thriller. It's it's really excellent. I just enjoy that hell out of that movie. I guess that's that's what I wanted. To, I just I just had to get that off my chest about Joel Schumacher. I think I think people are really unfair to him, and it, it really sucks because he's. I think he's just such a great artist, man. You can tell when you're watching a Joel Schumacher movie. At least I can. He just has such a he's such a visual flair. And it, you can tell you're, when you're watching one from the early 90s. They have their own separate visual look from some of his his later stuff he's do, doing here, like, you know, like the number 23 and 8mm and Blood Creek, where he's getting a little bit darker, yeah. and, and Phone Booth and things like that, where he's gotten a little bit more raw. I mean, if people want to fucking shit on him and discredit his entire career because of Batman and Robin, then go fuck yourself. Uh, so yes, so Joel Schumacher, great director, also directed the movie we're talking about tonight, The Lost Boys. Sorry, Lost Boys. The Corys, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, Jason Patrick, Diane Weist. Um, just huge cast. It's a cast of up-and-coming 80 stars. Here goes the crazy thing. This This totally blew my mind. Kiefer Sutherland was 18 when they made this movie. Corey Haim yeah. was 13 years old. 
That is insane, dude. They are so yep. young. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think uh, Kiefer Sutherland even wanted to get into acting, really. Oh, really? Lost Boys was like one of Lost Boys was one of the first few films he had done. His career kind of took off because he did Lost Boys, and of course he was in Flatliners. Oh, um, he was in Stand by Me before. Yeah, he was in Stand by Me too. Yeah. Yeah, I always and, oh man, uh, he was so scary in that movie, dude. Oh, he's got some creepy moments yeah. in this movie, but he's mostly just badass, bitching cool. Bernard Hubbard, man. Uh, what Diane Weiss calls, oh dad. I love I love his character yeah. has um, double stuffed or, or double stacked. What does he call him? Rules. We got some rules around here. Second shelf is mine. That's where I keep my root beers and my double thick Oreo cookies. Nobody touches the second shelf but me. It was like root beer. He doesn't even. He's he's not keeping the it regular beer. beer. That's that's okay. You that's on limits. But don't touch yeah, my. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You my root beer, too. Like, like there's a, there's a, there's a six pack of beer in like the refrigerator. You touch my damn root beer, your ass will be. You know, I'll taxidermy the hell out your ass. We have a huge cast here. Great director. We have to point out somebody else here that is just abs. It's just amazing. It's amazing that they got. Michael Chapman to be the director uh-huh. of photography. This dude, this guy yeah. shot Taxi Driver. He shot Raging Bull. That dude, I mean, that dude shot a shitload of films. This is a major, major get. Yeah, like even when this film was made, like he had already he had already made uh, Raging Bull by that point. Well, you also can't forget Richard Donner either, man. Richard Richard Donner was originally going to direct this movie. He was actually, yeah, he was actually supposed to direct the film. And I think he was working on Brain Fart. He started working on Lethal Weapon is what he was working on. Lethal Weapon, yeah. He went on to start working yeah, on Lethal was... Weapon, and he pa- he passed on uh, The Lost Boys, and he was trying to pick a different director to come in. And his wife yeah. suggested Joel Schumacher. To get Joel Schumacher, yeah. And originally the script was for, now the way it was written, it was more Goonies. The kids were yeah. like eight years old. It's supposed to be Goonies with vampires. Yeah, dude, that's crazy. And he came in and was like, hey, look, yeah. we need to make this sexy, and these need to be teenagers. The actual character star was supposed to be a blonde-headed pixie-looking girl. What happened was was apparently Jason Patrick suggested Jamie Gertz to come in and audition for it. And when Joel Schumacher saw her, he was like, okay, well, we're going to change the character, you know, to this. When you say the original concept with the eight-year-old kids, the title, The Lost Boys, makes a lot more sense. Because yeah, with when the I Peter watched Pan it, reference. Yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't actually get that till I was, oh, man, I think, I, I, must, I must have been like 15 or 16 before I got that. I was like, oh, yeah, because when I first watched it, I just took it at face value. It was like, oh, they're talking about The Lost Boys, the kids on the milk carton. And I never really made yeah. that that Peter Pan connection really until until I was a teenager. And I was like, oh well, duh, of course. Like they're flying yeah. around, they're kids that never grow up. Oh my gosh. Even uh Kiefer Sutherland's character says that to Jason Patrick in the movie, you know, he's like, you know, do you never want to grow old, Michael? To be completely honest, and I just never made that connection as a younger viewer. But the first time I saw it, I rented it from a video store, um, only because I read, 
I read about it because you know really the box art for this is not really cool. I mean, it's just no. it's just some kids on there, and you don't know it's about vampires. So to be honest with you, I just always kind of pass by it in the horror section. Yeah, I actually first saw it uh, because of, uh, one of our neighbors growing up had like this massive, massive, massive VHS collection. I remember borrowing that, and I didn't really know what it was at the time. Yeah, I ended up watching it, and it was amazing. I mean, to me, I thought it was, you know, this, you know, these kids were probably a little bit older than I was. Some of them were. And I was like, oh, man, that's so cool. They're fucking, you know, kids like my age, you know, hunting vampires. That's That's fucking awesome. I saw this in the early 90s, and you still had that, like, leftover, like, 80s cool, you know, like, I mean, Guns N' Roses was still, they were still a thing then, that 80s, that 80s hair band, and to me, at that age, that was like, oh, that was, that was the cool kids in high school. You know, I was too young, really, for that uh, generation, so those guys were, those were the cool kids. Cool-looking clothes, except for Corey Haim, man. Like, that dude's fucking fashion sense, man. And that movie is... Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, man, we got to we gotta talk about that when we get to that comic store scene. Oh, my God, dude. All, wow. the, like, all the vampire dudes in this movie are, like, incredibly awesome. Like, they're all wearing, like, these badass leather jackets. And, they, of course, they all fucking drive motorcycles. So they're, like, super, like, super awesome like rebellious teenagers and it's just we're like, the bad guys with fucking earrings man it's like we're the bad guys with earrings yeah hey dude at least one positive note on this movie there are no necklaces and did anybody have tattoos no. okay that, one of, uh, like i feel like if this movie was made now like all all of them would have t- very visible awesome tattoos somewhere oh, on yeah, their body they, yeah they'd be covered in tattoos I guess we we kind of skipped over a little bit of the cast, um, but yeah. Jason Patrick's in this. Um, of course, I know him from Narc. He was in Rush, yeah. uh, Speed yeah. Two, Cruise Control. We can't forget that. I don't. I don't really hate that movie all that much. And of course, he was in Sleepers. Yeah, and I know. I think he went on to do like on Law and Order or something. Now, Diane Weist is also in this. Uh, yeah, man, Diane Weist. She just won an Oscar um, before this. She won uh, Best Supporting Actress for uh, Hannah and Her Sisters, Woody Allen movie. She was in a few of those Woody Allen movies. Yeah, she won. I think she won her second Oscar. Uh, let me look it up here. I think it's for Bullets Over Broadway. Yeah. I, I think she won both both of her Oscars, I think, were for Woody Allen films. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Her second one was for Bullets yeah. Over Broadway, yeah. She's a stage actress for years. Yeah. Too. I think uh, her and the, uh, the guy that plays uh, Max, that uh, Edward Herman. Yeah, Edward Herman, he was a stage actor, too. Yeah, I think he was a stage actor as well. He just, he recently passed away, I think, uh, last year, so, which is a shame. Yeah, it sucks, man, because that's how I interview with him, and he was talking about possibly doing another Lost Boys movie. Okay, so have you seen Lost Boys 2 or Lost Boys 3? Yes, yes. Opinions, thoughts, they suck, they're terrible, what's up? Uh, The Tribe, I really didn't care that much for. They just probably portrayed Corey Feldman as he was in real life. It's like, uh, okay, Corey, this is your motivation. Just be you, dude. Just do you. Except for use the same voice that you used in Lost Boys. Lost Boys the Thirst. 
Which actually, I thought the thirst was pretty cool because they bring back the other frog brother. I think Corey Haim, they show him at the very end of the movie in The Thirst, I believe. It's been a long time since I've seen either one of those movies. I think we've just about covered everybody we need to talk about. Um, You want to play the trailer and then let's get into the movie. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Sammy, help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stick. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael! My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire! Well, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy! When a vampire bites it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! Oh, All right, we're back. Uh, that was the trailer for The Lost Boys. We all like to have our choirs sing the Ten Commandments to us. What's up with that song, yeah, dude? Yeah. Like, I mean, I like that song, but, like, why are they singing the Ten Commandments? And why is that in this movie? That's the, I guess that's really, like, the Lost Boys theme. Is yeah. is this yeah? Is this like little Ten Commandment, the Cry Little Sister theme? Cry music. Little Sister. I really like the font of this movie. Like when the title comes up on screen, how it's written out, the Lost Boys. And you know, yeah. especially when you see like the blue. I mean, like, look, man, Joel Schumacher's just got a great sense of style, dude. Like, he well, that, be- that beginning shot, you know, the very beginning shot in the movie, the helicopter shot. Yeah, the cameras. Yeah, the cameras going over the water and stuff. That that really is a beautiful shot. It's like I love every time they they use that in the movie. Yeah, that's uh, Santa Cruz standing in for uh, Santa Carla. Santa Carla, yeah. Yes. But what was it? Uh, Sudden Impact. That was shot there as well. Mm -hmm. That's that same boardwalk. Yeah, Sudden Impact. Mm -hmm. The the fourth Dirty Harry movie. Awesome movie. Go ahead and make my day. Great line. That's from that film. Anyway, there you go. But um, yep. yeah, I mean, like they have this this boardwalk here, and they got man, they got a bunch of really cool dolly shots. They got some slow mo shots. We get introduced to the four vampires that drive motorcycles. Kiefer Sutherland. It's like it automatically establishes that he's he's kind of like the badass. Yeah, he's know? the leader, right? Like he's the, the first alpha, one out. You know, like yeah, he's the alpha male. Yeah, so this first scene, the security guard. Him and then this couple pisses her boyfriend all off, and that's the dude that has tattoos. That's the only character in the movie that I know that has tattoos. And of course, the vampires come and kill him, but you don't really know that because the way the movie shot, it's kind of a POV helicopter shot, zooming in on something, then somebody getting like you know sucked up into the air. It rips that damn door off the car. Every time that they do this. 
when they do it with the cop and they rip the door off and then there's a really uh a cooler one a little bit later where they rip the the hood off the car so they rip the, they rip the entire roof off the car which is <laughs> which is really weird cuz this guy's like making out with this chick and she's reading comics and they rip yeah he's trying to do himself and she ain't trying to have that shit it's a little bit later and they they try to add some production value there but like i was listening to the commentary and Joel Schumacher was and I thought this was just really smart. He thought it would be better to spend his money in other places and not show the vampires flying here because that's a really expensive effect. So he chose to go he chose to go with the Jaws approach, you know, do the POV. And I think it works really well. It adds to a mystery, and when you see them flying a little bit later on in the movie, it makes it makes those flying sequences really stand out and makes those really amazing. Because we're saving them for their in climax. Yeah, it is. It's yes. It's it's very like Jaws, but at the same time, it's a real simple, easy way to build suspense, and it pulls you in the story right away. It's it's a really cool way to to shoot things. I think I don't know. I think sometimes budget restrictions make directors be more creative, and I think sometimes CGI and being able to show anything with any amount of money makes filmmakers. <laughs> I don't want to say it makes them lazy, but sometimes, it's, you know, it, it makes them dependent on that. It, it it really does. It works perfectly for this film. I mean, I knew from reading the movie that it was pretty much these guys were going to be the vampires. Because I read the tagline, I saw the poster. Yeah, it's pretty much obvious. 10 and 11, I mean, I'm, I'm able to put everything together, like what's going on. I enjoyed not seeing the vampires fly around and seeing what they looked like in makeup until... Joel Schumacher reveals these moments at certain parts in the movies for dramatic effect, and I appreciated that as a viewer. It makes you feel like when you actually do see what they look like as vampires, it it comes almost more as a surprise, and you really kind of appreciate it more. Okay, so like the first time you ever see them in vampire makeup, they're taking Michael, who is Jason Patrick's character, to make his first kill, and Keith Sutherland's talking to Michael about needing to feed and what he is now, and the way he's lit, he is in silhouette. When he turns and looks, and he delivers the last part of his line, he, and his face is completely lit up, and you see what he looks like in the in the vampire makeup with his really dramatic lighting. Matt, Michael Chapman did such a good job in this. When I first saw it, I was just like, oh, wow, it, it caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. I was just expecting, like, fangs. I you know, I think this makeup is, is really well done. I think it's been ripped off quite a bit uh, by Buffy the Vampire oh, yeah. Slayer, <laughs> the that TV show. I've, I haven't seen it, but from the pictures I've seen, their vampires look very similar to how the vampires look in the Lost Boys. This is this is one of the best vampire movies to come out of the nineteen eighties. I mean, I, okay, so vampire three, films out of the eighties, uh, Near Dark, Fright Night, yeah, Near Dark, Fright Night, uh, Lost Boys. Are your three big eighties uh, vampire films? Yeah, I don't, man, I don't know where I put Lost Boys in that list, but Fright Night's really, really good. I really enjoy Fright Night a lot. Fright Night is is really great. I, I would say, man, and, and Near Dark is too, man. But there's just something about Lost Boys. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I look past the whole 80s 
I don't. I, it was really weird because when I saw it, it was one of the first like horror comedies. Like out, it was like the grown-up version of the Monster Squad. Like I'm not gonna lie, like I saw the Monster Squad first as a kid. Yeah, you know, and is that was yeah. more comedy, and this was like the more this was like the teenage version of the Monster Squad. Well, like we were, like we were talking in the beginning, you know, it was supposed to kind of be Goonies a little bit. So I, I think that you know maybe some of that concept of it did kind of translate over. Because there is some kind of there is some comedy in the movie, and like I think this is more comedic than than Fright Night. Like Fright Night for me, like, it has more. its laughs, but at the yeah. same time, like it, like that, like that really conveys like that's got some really cr- incredibly creepy moments in that film as well. Yeah, it does. Like the way the vampires it, look it, it, in that movie, just oh my gosh! But oh man, yeah, nightmares when I was a kid. Like especially um, the main character's girlfriend. When girlfriend, she, yeah. Oh, when she gets oh, when she gets turned into a vampire, like her mouth is huge and just full of like a billion mm-hmm. teeth. Near Dark was a straight up no bullshit serious vampire movie. Yeah, that yeah that well, I mean it was, but it was it was still a lot of fun. I really like the bar scene in that where Bill Paxton starts yeah. cutting the people's necks yeah. with his spurs. Oh, dude, yeah. that is so much fun! Like Bill Paxton's just chewing the scenery up. You basically find that uh, Diane Weiss and her two sons have moved to their grandfather, her mother's house. That house, man, is really. Uh, gigantic i don't even know if, yeah, yeah it's, it's the huge. biggest cabin in the woods ever it's huge man and then like this guy's got like fucking wood car statues of grizzly bears drinking beer i mean the house yeah. is totally like it, that that's the thing about like the, the the 80s hollywood movies like who in their right mind would live in a cabin out in the middle of nowhere and build a uh, wooden like it's it's like a cabin in the woods like a log cabin right but it is like it's a mansion version of that it's it's got multiple floors in it yeah the the grandpa is a taxidermist and so at least that's what i assume that he does you know for a living it doesn't really say what he does for a living i i don't know if he's no i mean that's that's, people make good money doing that shit man I do like his He's thing about the retired. TV guide in the movie, too. Now, on Wednesdays, when the mailman brings a TV guide, sometimes the address label is curled up just a little like that. Now, he'll be tempted to tear it off. Don't. You'll only wind up ripping the cover, and I don't like that. And stay out of here. Wait, wait. You have a TV? No. I just like to read the TV guide. Read the TV guide. I don't need a TV. And don't peel the damn label off of my TV guide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like, sometimes the label might be a little curled up. He's <laughs> like, but don't be, don't be tempted to pick it off. Dude, that was great, man. It was just like the perfect, like, he played, he played the fine line between, like, cranky old grandpa and lovable old grandpa so well. And then the scene with the car. And I love on the license plate that he has like 57 flip written on the license plate. So they meet Grandpa, they get settled in, they're moving in with Grandpa because Mom's getting a divorce, of course. You know, it's an 80s film and, you know, like, man, 
eighties films, I feel like a lot of eighties films, like if you had kids, it was about divorce. Well, I mean, that's because divorce rate was high in the eighties. Was it just? Oh, it was shit. it just high in the eighties, or was it just because like we were just getting to a point where we were starting to put that in our films? Because you really, if you think about it, before the eighties, I mean, the first film I can think of that's popular that even had divorce in it was Kramer versus Kramer. Steven Spielberg movies in the eighties and things. There's a lot of divorce and broken families and things like that. Except for Goonies. They were just about ready to be a bunch of homeless motherfuckers. Yeah, well, you know, they had their own they had their own completely different set of issues in Goonies. They get settled here, and then the kids go out. Mom is going out to look for a job. She ends up getting a job at the video store. But the boys go to the most awesome concert ever in the entire fucking world. Yeah. I still believe. Can we cue that music up, that please? Fucking dude, that dude has got one hell of a fucking mullet, man. I'm telling you right now. I did a little bit of research on this. This guy that plays the sax and sings. This is not the. This is not the actual singer of the band. Hell no. Hell All right. No. This is actually Tina Turner's saxophone player. And on the commentary, this <laughs> this just, this killed me. On the commentary, Joel Schumacher said in between takes, he was he was working out. He was pumping iron, bro, and he was oiling up. <laughs> in between takes, and dude, when you watch this movie, I believe that story a hundred percent. Because this guy is just, man, he's got, all right, let me set this up for you. He's got, yeah, he's got that ponytail. He's got this chain around his neck, right? This is like a fucking chain that you would lose, that you would use to bring down like a fucking hundred-year-old oak tree <laughs> around his neck. And let me tell you what, dude, like, I swear to God, I could work out every day of my entire life, and I will never be that ripped. Like, this dude, like, straight up, like, dude looks good, man. I'm not going to knock him at all, like... And he's got the most tightest, most sperm killing this skinny jeans ever. He does. He, fucking he does have some goddamn I, tight pants on, bro. He's almost like overacting there to a point. The last time you see him when he's all smiling and shit. Oh, I still believe. All right, look, I'll, like, I got to make a confession. This guy right here, his performance. And when I found when I found out this this was not the lead singer of the band, it made me die a little bit inside. But his performance <laughs> is the reason I bought the soundtrack for this film. Yeah, I man, I kid you Remember not. When like I, when I when I saw this one, I was a kid. I was like, dude, that guy is badass, bro. Well, this was a great soundtrack, man. This was a really good soundtrack back in the day. I'm not a huge fan of the Doors at all, but I really enjoyed. The Echo and the Bunnymen cover. Yeah, uh, Joel Schumacher was a real big fan of the Doors, and that's he. He actually got these guys to cover this uh, for the movie. Yep. Apparently, like he called up the original like keyboard player for the Doors, or something. Yeah, I, man, I can't. In. I can't one hundred percent remember. I re I didn't take a note on this, so uh, don't quote me on this. But yeah, I think it, he called up some member from the Doors. And they got in touch with these guys at Echo and the Bunnymen because he produced one of their albums. 
And that's that's how this song got made. Well, I I like this. <laughs> I like the whole concert scene, man. Like, because you got yeah. this guy. He's he's up on stage and he's like super buffed and oiled up. And then Jason Patrick meets eyes with the um, Jamie Kurt star character. It, she looks kind of angelic in this. The way like I really like the way. Joel Schumacher puts these moments and and he makes his man he makes his actors and actresses look fucking amazing on camera. Yeah, like you see right away from Jason Patrick's point of view. Like yeah, you know it's like it's lust at first sight. And of course she goes away with the cool biker vampire Kiefer Sutherland dude, and I, I like it too because the next time you like you kind of see Michael. Next time he's on the boardwalk, he's all like trying to trying to get see if he can get an earring and he buys a leather jacket and <laughs> he's all trying yeah. to impress the hot chick so while mike goes off looking for a girl sam Corey hames character he goes off and he runs into the frog brothers at this comic shop in that lovely lovely white trench coat that he's wearing yes he's in that ridiculous outfit but the collar on that bitch is like Flipped up to his earlobe. <laughs> I get they're like teenagers that work in this comic shop, and their parents are never really mentioned. But in the <laughs> background, in several of the time. shots, did you notice the adults that were sitting there? The the old man and woman. They had like a they have like long hair. They're a bunch of hippies. It's like a hippie couple. Yeah, that's their parents. Yeah, yeah, that's just, supposed to be their parents. <laughs> yeah, they're just like passed out. Uh, so what did you do? Take all your hippie money from selling your hippie drugs to buy a comic shop? The same character and his tastes, I don't really understand them all. So he goes into this he goes in this comic shop and we, we just talked about his wardrobe. He goes in this comic shop and he's looking for uh Batman number fourteen, right? Batman number fourteen, yeah. which is supposed to be super rare. They he he says it's super rare. There's only three and no four in existence or something like that. Yeah, thanks to the internet, I know this is not true. All right, I looked this up on the internet because I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Batman fan. We were talking about Batman and Robin earlier, so I I I, yeah. I looked this up. Batman comic number fourteen, December nineteen forty two. Description: Batman and Robin battle. Battle Nazi spies, the Penguin, and a villain named Pills Matheson. The record sale value is thirteen thousand. The minimum sale value was eighty dollars. Damn! Uh, And it it doesn't say that there's only four in existence. Obviously, if it's selling at those kind of prices, and one of them sold for eighty bucks, there's more than three or four in existence. So you've been nerd busted there. Lost Boys. Those guys are probably like, you know what? Just put in Batman something. These nerds will never, they'll never know. It's not like there's ever going to no, be a database that's going to collect all this information. Uh, yeah, what's the internet? And of course, I'm getting this information from uh, sellmycomicbooks.com. So that's that's my source on that. The Frog Brothers. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. a little bit about the Frog Brothers here, Prawl. Because I think they this is where the comedy gets really injected into the film for me. I mean, these guys look like they straight came out of the fucking mountainside of a backwoods Montana militia. Yeah. Well, I think they think they do. Yeah, they think they do. (laughs) Yeah. 
I don't really know if they're ready for any kind of action, so to speak. Frog Brothers, they're they're like the world's most serious 14-year-olds. Pre-Batman, Batman voice. How much do you think we should charge him for this? They add so much fun to this movie. They really do. And, I mean, not really so much at first when you first encounter them in the film. Or when Sam first encounters them. Oh, really? But I liked them right from the start, man. Like their first, their very first oh, scene. I, do. I thought they were, I thought they were funny and stealing the scenes. And I do, I do get why the Corys were a thing. Like they do have good chemistry in these scenes. They're not bad at all. You pointed out to me that Molly Ringwald mm-hmm. is on Sam's wall, but then on his yeah. bedroom closet is the closet door. <laughs> Right, <laughs> he's got Rob Lowe in like Rob. sexy Rob Lowe '80s pose. In that totally like, and I never understood this about '80s fashion, man. Like, this is one of one of the many things that perplex the fucking hell out of me. You buy a sweatshirt, right? Then you cut the arms off of it. You cut it halfway through, you know, the shirt to where it's like. Above being a belly shirt. Dude, I'd want to be Rob Lowe, man. Oh, my God, dude. Super attractive, super funny, super witty. If we had sexy Rob Lowe posters that were being sold at Walmart, I'd probably have one in my closet door, too. Especially after yeah, Parks yeah. and Rec, man. Did you ever watch Par- uh, Parks and Recreation? His, he was really funny on yeah. that. Yeah, that, that, was, that was really funny. That was, was kind of Rob Lowe's comeback. Yeah, and of course, uh, Rob Lowe was also in St. Elmo's Fire, which is like one of Joel Schumacher's, it was like his second yeah. or third movie. He also played the role in uh, as the douchey dude in uh, Wayne's World. But the guy that was the one mullet-having Lost Boy, that dude went on to uh, star in Bill and Ted, the Bill and Ted movies with Keanu Reeves. That is Alex Winter. You know what's and really sad to admit to people, but I actually saw that cartoon <laughs> before I saw that movie. Uh, do you remember the Saturday morning Bill and Ted cartoon? Yeah, I do remember the cartoon. Yeah, I saw the cartoon before I saw that movie. I was a little pissed when I saw Bogus Bogus Journey. Because I was like, man, this is just not like the cartoon at all. And then I saw Excellent Adventure and really loved that. You know what? Let's let's go to the cool section of this movie. Let's just let's go to Jason <laughs> Patrick getting into a fucking motorcycle race. With Kiefer Sutherland, while Say Hello to the Night, Lost Boys, Lost in the Shadows, by Graham, I think is the artist's name, is playing in the background. Dude, this is a really awesome sequence. This is amazing. Now, this was done poor man's process. You can tell in the shots that the close-up shots of the actors, they're just in, like, you know, they're in a garage environment or a studio environment where it's dark, and they're shining lights on the actor with a wind fan and smoke, and they're having lights go by. This is why you get, like, Michael Chapman DP your film is there's this lighthouse nearby, and the lighthouse is this—it's this constant lighting 
motif that goes on throughout this entire sequence at the end where you're constantly yeah, getting the light dope. shown. It's it's so awesome, dude. It's just I thought I thought another cool part of that sequence was, you know, when they were, when they were riding through the woods and stuff. That, oh, like yeah. one little thickly wooded area that they went through. It's like it, it's it's kind of crazy because I guess that's when Michael almost runs off the edge of the cliff. He gets up and he's like, "You son of a bitch! Come on, me and you right now." And Kiefer Sutherland is such a badass. They go back to their little cave and hide out and hang out. You get the very classic, you know, the scene that everybody knows from the movies with the how are those maggots, Michael? How are those maggots? <laughs> Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? <laughs> Leave them alone. <laughs> I, th- I thought it looked really good. Like I really loved the design of, I guess their their little lair, some hotel that was built, and it was like an earthquake, and the hotel sunk in the ground. Well, yeah, you know, they had no money for this set. No money for this set at all. There was no yeah. money. They had just like some flats and they just threw crap up. At least that's the way Joel Schumacher is, is making it sound in his commentary. Like he literally is like, look, we had some we had some flat walls and we threw shit up because there was at this point in the movie, there was just no more money for sets. So incredible. Yeah, no. I mean like uh, I thought it turned out amazing, honestly. The star chick had her own little bed, bed area, bedroom, whatever the hell you want to call it. Oh yes, yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah, no, um, so I mean, yeah, Bo Welch was the production designer. This is the the dude that did Beetlejuice. I think he did all three of the Men in Black movies. Like Joel Schumacher gets good people, and Joel Schumacher knows how to stretch his dollar. Like. I don't know if it's him just demanding the best from his people or if it's him always because he just seems like he takes care of people. Like I was listening yeah. to the commentary in this film and I was just so surprised at how Joel Schumacher was talking about his actors. And Yeah, he, he praises them quite a bit. Yeah, right? You know what I mean? Where it's like he had this great part in there. He's just like, you know, sometimes directors really have negative things to say about actors and he's just like I don't I don't know how you would go to work every day if you hated actors. Like how could you how could you do that? And I was just like, man, that makes so much sense. That is such a good point. Like how could yeah. you? And you do you do hear a lot of you know, you hear a lot of Hollywood, you read variety, you read you read the Hollywood reporter, you hear a lot of stories where directors they do bitch about their actors and actors bitch about directors and this back and forth going on. And here this guy is. He's coming out here and he's just like, no, just, man, no, I love working with actors. They're great. I mean, I'm sure there's some that are problematic. Uh, I know he had some problems with Val Kilmer on Batman Forever, but. But who hasn't had problems with Val Kilmer on movie sets? Does seem to be. A lot of people seem to have problems with some of the things he does. Let's just fast forward a little. So, I guess, well, the one quick thing we should get to is in this cave, he does drink blood yeah, from David. Yeah, he thinks it's wine. The, yeah, the Kiefer Sutherland, yeah, he does think it's wine. Because, you know, they they did trick him with the maggots, and he thought he was he thought he thought was eating maggots, right? But he really wasn't. They were just noodles. They tricked him with the worms. 
Yeah. They tricked him with the worms and the noodles and the maggots and the rice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's right. It, that, I'm sorry. Yeah, I misspoke. So when they gave him when they gave him the blood, he was just like, "Oh yeah, well, you know, you also told me that noodles were worms and maggots were rice. Sure, the wine is blood. He drinks it. He kind of becomes a vampire. I, he becomes a kind of a half vampire. <laughs> But before we go yeah, into the half vampire yeah. stuff and start talking about that, I do want to talk about this bridge sequence that comes up. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. I really love this scene. Well, it's it's everything that I like when you talk when you tell me about peer pressure and what peer pressure is. In the town that we grew up in, uh Paul and I, there there were actually a couple of kids that went out on a, on a train bridge and died and they were older than us. But yeah. I remember hearing that story when we were kids and that really, that, that was a huge impact. Like I was extremely cautious and I was like, well, you know, I'm make sure I'll never know, go near train bridges. So, so trains really terrified me as a, as a kid. And okay. So the vampires, they all lure Michael out onto this this rail bridge and make him dangle off of it as this train's coming out there. And to me, that was just that was the worst thing. That just said everything that was wrong about peer pressure. Just your friends getting yeah. you to do the worst, most terrible thing to put you in the most awful situation imaginable. Common sense would have told anybody, you know, maybe these are the people I should be hanging out with, you know. Michael does a lot just to get laid. Like that also goes to tell you right there that teenage boys do lots of stupid shit to get laid. Well, that's true, but I mean, like at the same time, like a lot of this has to do with the the vampire. Like vampires are all just metaphors for other things, and and in this case, you know, vampires has a it's a lot to do with show you about drug addiction and peer pressure. You know, like, even in the movie, you take that blood out and, like, let's say that's wine. Okay, so he's getting drunk with his friends. He's going out to this bridge. Well, yeah, but they smoke a dube, too. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, okay, there you go. The scene ends with him, you know, he's dangling from these this train bridge. He's holding on to the rails with his hands, and there's nothing below him. There's just nothing but fog. Everybody else lets go, and he lets go, and... At that point, it's it's very symbolic of him joining them. As they were falling, like, you know, Michael's the last one hanging on. You could hear them calling him. And... Come with us, Michael. I really, really enjoyed that transition, that that transition right there that goes from Michael just kind of like falling forever and all of a sudden he just lands right on his bed. Completely agree. I love that as well. That's a really good fade. We're fasting forward to the good stuff. Jason Patrick and Jamie Kurtz get it on. Oh yeah, later on in the movie, yeah. He finally, all his hard work is paid off. You know, drinking wine, dangling from bridges, it all pays off, and he finally gets laid. And I, I'm not like I—I I really like this this whole sequence. 
Okay, so sex is supposed to be like flying through clouds. And they have this really, it's, you know, it's a very montage dissolve heavy sex scene. And of course, there's, you know, it's, it's pretty clean. There's no nudity shown really at all. It's just naked backs and people caressing backs and stuff like that. I mean, doesn't Michael go there looking for uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character? Yeah, yeah, he does. That's, yeah, that's the original reason. It's like, there you go, man. Kiefer Sutherland and Jason Patrick and Jamie Kurtz, their characters all have this really weird kind of, they have this weird bisexual love triangle going on. It is almost, isn't it? Like, I never I never really looked at it that way. And I, I mean, I've seen that movie a lot of times, dude. And I never really thought about it that way. Okay, so David, he's with Star. But at yeah, the same time, yeah. the way he beckons to Michael, like it's all, it's it's extremely sexual, even though it's between two guys. It yeah, is sexually really charged. Like, yeah, it's not really like, yeah, man, you know, be my buddy, come hang out, you know. And I'm, and I'm watching all these scenes, like it does have a sexuality to it, but at the same time, I find it so like I like you know I'm I'm heterosexual. But I find it incredibly engaging, and I am in, I understand Jason Patrick's involvement and obsession with Kiefer Sutherland's character. Like yeah. Kiefer yeah. Sutherland is it's beyond almost, fucking cool. It's like I almost get that alpha male kind of sense from it too. At the same time, where it's like two alpha males, but instead of just beating the shit out of one another. They have, like, this really strange sexual attraction. No, I totally agree. Yeah, like, they're they're fighting over Jamie Kurtz's star character. It creates this, yeah, it creates this weird sexual tension between the two of them. David, or Kiefer Sutherland's character, uses star to get to, to Michael. Well, yeah, I mean, well, of course, later in the movie, you realize the whole intentions for all this stuff is because Edward Herman's character, Max, the whole reason is he wants to get with Diane Weiss characters so they can kind of have a vampire Brady Bunch. You know, they even say it in the movie, like, let's have the vampire Brady Brady Bunch. Yeah, Yeah, you know, it's like, so that's all revealed. But there's still, like, even, even repeat viewings knowing that, there is still a extremely obvious sexual tension between Kiefer Sutherland and Jason Patrick. Okay, like yes, he wants to bang Star, but he he's seduced by David. Totally agree with that. Yeah, Star is the character that gets him hooked, right? But David is the character that keeps him coming back. Like that's the one that he's interested in. That and that's the one we're interested in as the audience. Like he's bad, but we. Like we, yeah, like when you watch this, you um, you want him to be the good guy almost. You want like it's just like, oh man, dude, I want you to be good. You're so fucking yeah. awesome. You know what I mean? You're so cool. Well, I mean, and Kiefer Sutherland does his this so well. He plays a very intriguing character. Uh, but one 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 of the scenes that I really really enjoy a lot is that that scene with Sam the bathtub scene and it's like really dude you're a little too old to be playing in the fucking bathtub here you know it's like yeah i thought this guy's like it's the fucking dog man the nook 
the Husky or Malamute or whatever that dog is. What'd you do to my dog, yeah. asshole? Your dog was protecting me. You're going to find out your brother's a vampire. The first thing you do is, well, you know what? I'm telling mom, mister. That is a great line. I mean, this is, you know, this is where the comedy kicks in. I'm going to go back to Nanook real quick. I didn't know this, but there's actually, they had two different dogs on set. One dog that just did the snarls for when it was angry. And then there was another dog that was with the actors all the time through all the scenes. But they actually had a different animal that would do the growls and things like that just for safety reasons. And I actually oh, never yeah. even thought about that. And I've, I, you know, I've even worked on sets with with animals before. I n- never once thought about that at this budget level. You know, that's just one of those things where. No, I've never worked on a set where you've had to have animals get angry or like violent toward a human. Straight go Cujo on a motherfucker. Actually, the dogs, the dogs in the movie, should I'd probably say just as much as the actual characters are. We gotta re- mention the really awesome dinner party sequence. All right, so Sam and the Frog Brothers have figured out, so they think, that the Max character is the head vampire, and they put him through some tests. But of course, they fuck up and they invite him in. Hey, how you doing? You must be Michael, right? And you must be Max, right? How are you? Well, you're the man of the house, and I'm not coming in until you invite me. You're invited. Thanks very much. You know, so once you invite a vampire into your house, I guess all your powers are useless at that point. But, I mean, like, so what does that mean, though, all your powers? So, like, he can see himself in a reflection, but... Okay, so I guess crosses don't do a lot in this in this movie to vampires, right? No, it doesn't. No. And they don't turn into in different animals or bats or anything like that. They do have fucked up feet and hang upside down, and they fly. Yeah. But they don't turn into yeah. bats, though. Yeah, that 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 dinner sequence, man. Like, I really, I really enjoyed that dinner sequence. I enjoyed a lot of the shots when. The dog, the dog tied outside, and like Star and Lenny with his fucking Confederate States of America jacket on. What are you talking about? Yeah. What you know that fucking the the little the little kid man Lenny the little yeah no I know the character you're talking about what what do you mean the swear that jacket the jacket that that kid wears in that movie looks like it straight was a rip off of like. It could have been designed for, like, a Civil War, Confederate Civil War soldier's jacket. Oh, I never even noticed that. I have to go back and look at that. Yeah, like, that's what I think when I see that little dude. The one thing I wanted to get with the dinner sequence thing was, I guess once this scene gets out of the way, I guess the introduction of this scene was the first time that that I even thought of the possibility that somebody else was the head vampire outside of Kiefer Sutherland's David character. Like, yeah. I just always thought it was David. Like, I never yeah, questioned uh, that. Well, well, the movie whole, I mean, it kind of like, to believe the whole movie that David is the head vampire. And of course, I thought it was Max too. And then of course, 
He gets through all the tests. Yeah, they threw that big curveball at you. It kind of does lead you to believe that, you know, Max really isn't the, you know, head vampire, that he's actually just a nice video store owner. And it also makes, you know, Sam and Edward and Alan, it really kind of makes them look like a bunch of tools. Plus, it kind of puts Sam in some hot water with his mom. I really enjoy the the whole cave sequence when they take out uh, Marco. Like, yeah, we're, yeah, yeah, we're gonna go for the little one. Yeah, Sam's he calls uh, he calls up the Frog Brothers and they go to they go to their cave to eradicate the vampires. And I thought this was really cool for a bunch of reasons. One, the vampires are hanging upside down with their weird bat feet and they're not in coffins. <laughs> yeah, and, but when they get yeah, in there, that's... like, you know, the frog brothers are like, Oh, that's what this whole place is. It's one big coffin. That's a smart idea. I, I like that. You know, dude, that, that, that scene is kind of, I, mean, I wouldn't say it's, it's gory. No, it's definitely not gory. Cause the vampires don't even have blood in them. They have like clear liquid. Yeah, It's like this. It's like, I always thought it was like this weird looking brownish fluid. <laughs> I yeah. love, I love the response. Like once they stake this one guy, like Kiefer Sutherland's like, you're dead meat. Like seriously, what bad guy in a film would say that now? No one. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, this film is a little bit of a product of its time here. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, I, I love this movie. I, I think it's great, but it is definitely a product of the 80s. There is no question about that. It lived in the now of 1987. Right after they come rushing out of the cave and shit. And the Frog Brothers are kind of, like, arguing. Yeah, I, dude, you know, I like, I like that part. But, you know, the part I liked a little bit better was their weapons check before they even went down there. Like, yeah, you know they're so too. disorganized. They're so fucked going in because when they do their weapons checked, they don't, like, they don't even have it rehearsed. One of them's looking one way and the other one's looking the other and they're just like, oh, wait, okay, oh, wait, wait, I'm supposed to check your backpack? Okay, I'll check your backpack. Okay, wait. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they're just like, they're like, a bunch of bumbling idiots. Yeah, completely uncoordinated whatsoever. And it's, and it's like, like you guys really have never fucking killed a vampire ever. Yeah, do you guys <laughs> like, even know what a vampire is outside of what what you've read in a comic? Like, what you read in your fucking comic books? What yeah. you, what are, or are you guys for real? I want you going down there. Well, I'm going. Look, this isn't a comic book, Sam. These guys are brutal killers. So are the Frog Brothers. Check me. Look, who would you rather go down there with you, them or me? Something happens down there. I'm not gonna have the strength to protect you. Well, this time I'll protect you, bud. Even though you're a vampire, you're still my brother. Listen, just so you know, if you try to stop us or vamp out in any way, then I'll stake you without even thinking twice about it. Chill out, Edgar. The man, the, the, and then the, the shortly thereafter, you had a little montage where they're just fucking running around on their bicycles. Oh, dude, no, that's great, right? Like, uh, my favorite, my mm-hmm. entire favorite part of that is when they go into that church and they just have all their cantinas and they're just like, <laughs> the church, they're doing some kind of like baptism. They're just like, it's so many great reaction shots of the churchgoers that are just like, what, it's like, it's what are like, you boys really, doing? it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy and it's hard to believe that they managed 
and all those canteens that they filled up managed to fill an entire bathtub full of holy water. Okay, see, that's what I thought too, but I was actually watching that this time. If you look, mm-hmm. they actually have the faucet on in the bathtub and they're pouring in water from the cantinas. Yeah. So they're like diluting it, and I lots. think that's why they're also throwing the gar- garlic water in, in it because they're not 100% sure if just the holy water mixed with tap water will kill yeah. it. Yeah. That's the best vampire death scene in the entire movie is is the bathtub with you know the garlic in it you know they uh, they eventually one of the vampires gets pushed in by the dog and yeah and that vampire wreaked hell on the septic system of that house oh yeah no it destroys the kitchen and all the bathrooms basically covers the house in blood and black viscous fluid so I I wanted to to mention real quick that uh, Rob Brown or Robert Brown was the editor on this movie. And Joel Schumacher, and I quote, this is an actual quote from him on the commentary for the Blu-ray or the two-disc special edition DVD. Rob Bowman, he made chicken salad out of chicken shit. Wow. Yeah, and that was all for, now, the whole climax to this movie with the vampires getting ready to leave the cave this was completely this was completely put together through footage that was shot from other scenes yes that's definitely it's true. cobbled together stuff like the pov shot of them leaving if you listen to the commentary the cave, joel yeah. schumacher even points out that it's like if they would be leaving and this is a pov they would be leaving in reverse they would be flying out of the cave ass first you know, and the whole reason is that because they had that shot earlier in the movie where they go into the cave, where they're just taking that mm-hmm. shot and they're reversing it. You know, so it's just like this one of those editing tricks. It's so awesome. And, you know, I just I love it when editors are able to take footage that exists from other things, from other scenes and make a completely new scene out of it to help fill out the pacing for this film. I think that's just genius. Yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, if you think about it, that that sequence is a build-up to what's what's about to happen. Exactly. And I mean, it's, that it's part building of the movie, tension. Yeah, and that part of the movie would not be the same without that reverse sequence. So yeah, I mean, I I, I can't say enough. I can't say enough great things about the editing here. Um, I mean, the whole film is is cut flawlessly. For the time when it was made, I don't think there's anything in this film that is just extra filler. Or is done. I like this is as fast as films get in 1987. The film seems. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's because Lost Boys is such a good movie that it seems like it goes by really fast. But it kind of does seem like it. The, the movie is is very well paced. I mean, it's it's not really a short film. I mean, it, it's short, but it's not extremely short. It's 97 minutes long, 98 minutes long, something like that. I guess we should go into our last kills. Why don't yes, you sir. take us through Death by Stereo? <laughs> yeah. Sam encounters this, uh, one of the vampires downstairs. He's got like a bow and arrow. 
even though I don't really understand how logically this would throw the vampire. I mean, yeah, getting shot in the heart with an arrow, of course, that's understandable. He shoots him this, this bow, and this bow has such force that it smashes him into this gigantic asteroid. It just fries him, and he explodes. Well, it shoots him and in the heart. Have, his hands blow up, yeah. and he gets decapitated. Yeah. All of him is literally all over the room. And that's all because the stereo is blowing up in different sections. I don't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense if you think about it, but if you don't think about it, it looks really awesome. That's one high wattage stereo right there, dude. (laughs) And of course, we get the best line of the movie Death by stereo. What an amazing line, dude. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is kind of corny as shit, though. It is, and then, that's when we get to our David and Michael confrontation. The whole highlight yep. of the film, what we've been waiting for this entire time. And that whole that whole uh, flight sequence, when like flying around in the living room, dude, that, that shit looks amazing. After, you know, basically they've killed off, what, three of the four original vampires? He is still trying to convince Michael to join them at that point in time. Well, I yeah, mean, but that's because that's is. his mission. We don't know that yet. And, I mean, he even tells David, he's like, I don't want to fight you and all this other shit, you know? Tried to make you immortal. You tried to make me a killer! There's one shot that I really love. All all the way up to you are a killer. All the way up to that line. This sequence builds very nicely with Kiefer Sutherland's character constantly attacking Jason Patrick's character and knocking him down. And Jason Patrick has no idea where he's coming from. One of the very last shots is... Kiefer Sutherland's David character, he is silhouetted in this this lamp that's fallen down, and it's kind of spotlighted his shadow on this wall. And they're talking back and forth, and he's like, oh, you trying to make me a killer? And Kiefer yeah. Sutherland just runs at Jason Patrick, and you see his shadow running at him, and then you get this cut, and it's this crazy camera angle kind of rushing toward Jason Patrick, and then Jason Patrick gets hit. I really can't compliment Michael Chapman enough for his cinematography in this film. Uh, it definitely I, is amazing. Yeah, I think I think the cinematography, the acting, and the directing took this script, and instead of making it good and watchable, made it great, and turned it into a cult classic. A scene that I kind of enjoyed a lot was right after David dies and Michael's still kind of vamping out, you know, where, like, Star is standing there and, like, David's kind of facing the camera and he tells Star to basically keep Sam away and don't let Sam see him. And I really do like those shots, man, of just, like, Jason Patrick's eyes, few shots that they have. Kind of between that that little sequence, and um, that's when the mom 
and Max return from their date and find the house is just like completely trashed. When the Max character starts going straight for David, that's that's right when I knew the first time I saw this. I knew that he was somehow the head vampire right then. You know, when he's like sitting there and he takes his glasses off, he's like, you know, Lucy, you know, we could have all been one big happy family. Turns into a vampire like fucking quick, dude. His goddamn tongue is long as hell, man. Have you noticed that? Yeah, his tongue and his teeth are really long. It's like, man, dude. And his forehead is extra bulgy. Almost like Cro-Magnum. <laughs> well, he is the master vampire. He should get a deeper suck from his long teeth and a better lick from his long tongue. And I'm going to yeah. stop now. Yeah, he is He is the head vampire. Yeah, he's yeah, the head definitely. vampire. And look, he you know he's alone. He doesn't have a chick to spend eternity with. And he chose Diane Weiss to spend eternity with. So, <laughs> you know. And, and also that's what's him, up. He wants to make his vampiric Brady Bunch. Basically, you have Max whip up Michael's ass a little bit, then grab Sam. So he gets Diane Weiss kind of submissive, becomes submissive, more submissive to him. And then, of like, course, Grandfather ruins all of that noise. I love his car horn. <laughs> love that car horn. He comes in and saves the day. Yes. And see, this is one thing I like about Lost Boys. Okay. You know, I know we I know we discussed this on the Pumpkinhead podcast about the the little flamethrower. Earlier in the movie, you actually see a scene where the grandfather is putting up fence posts, and you see the fence post on the back of his truck, and the fucking badass fence post just comes flying through the fucking window and hits Max. Max hits the fireplace. He explodes. Grandpa comes in, and that scene right there, man, is so great because the grandpa comes in, and he just, like, straight walks to the refrigerator, and he just grabs one of his root beers and just starts chugging that bastard. And my personal opinion, which I think is the, one of the best lines in the movie. Dad, are you all right? One thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. I love how it just gets a shot of Lucy, Sam, and Michael, and it just kind of fades out right there. Yeah, you just get their reaction of, did you know about this the entire time and not tell us? Like, yeah, what is going what, on? What is like, cool. did, did you know about vampires the entire time and you told nobody in the entire family about that? Yeah, it's like, what a total dick move, right? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the, that, that is the exact response he has, right? Like, he's just, he's just like, you know, you know, man, I just, I, uh, these vampires, right? Man, they're so bad. But that fight scene with, um, between David and Michael that ends in that really, yeah. That, that really horrific impalement. And he goes from being all like vampiritic to this innocent looking kid. You mean as innocent looking as Kiefer Sutherland can look? Because I'll be honest with you, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland does not really look that innocent. Even when he's dead, he still looks like a evil, sinister bastard. Shit, that's, that's the Lost Boys, guys. That's the movie. That's pretty much it. It's... 
kind of scary. It's not really that scary, but it's it's pretty fun. It's yeah. a product of its time. It's a product of the eighties, and um, I think Joel Schumacher did a really fantastic job directing this movie. I don't think it's his best film. I think it it belongs in the top five Joel Schumacher films for sure. And it, it's it's a film that's in. I think it's inspired a lot of other filmmakers. I don't think a heterosexual director could have made this movie. I feel like Joel Schumacher imprinted on a very sensitive side and a sexual side on vampires that we haven't seen at this particular time period. It's got funny elements. It's got horror elements. And And it almost has this kind of like sign of the times element to it. Um, and it overall is a, is a fantastic film. Like I said earlier, I think it's one of the best vampire movies to come out of the eighties. I as well wouldn't say that it's Schumacher's best film. It's damn sure up there, man. And it also has a little bit of mystery to it too. You know, just that little hint of mystery to it. So, Paul, what should we play to close out the show with tonight? I mean, Say hello to the night. Really? Is it is it Lost in the Shadows, or should we play I Still Believe? Oh, dude, let's go with I Still Believe. Yeah, just because of the logging chain wearing saxophone, fake saxophone playing, lip singing, mullet having 80s dude. All right, you know what? You got a very good point. All right, so you've been listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. If you guys want to get in touch with us, the email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. It's themoviecrew, crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E, at gmail.com. And guys, please leave us a review, rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. That helps people find out about the show. Thank you again so much for all that you do. We love our audience. Paul, thank you for joining me on this extremely amazing retrospective here of The Lost Boys. Lost Boys was kind of like a no-brainer. So, um, man, man, thanks for having me on again, dude. And hope to be on in the very soon future again. So like always, we leave you guys with a soundtrack selection. Paul, take it away. Yeah, tonight we have I Still Believe, performed by Tim Capello from the Lost Boys soundtrack. Peace. Enjoy.
Shame. 